Hello, and welcome to the Time Dulled Chain. My name is Kevin Barrett, and this is a mediocre reading of Ulysses by James Joyce. It is Friday, February 11th, 2022, in the world I occupy, and in the world we are reading, it is June 16th, 1904. Um, I realize now that I neglected to say in my introduction that and this is kind of a widely known fact, I think, about people who, or about Ulysses by people who have read Ulysses, um, but the book was set on June 16th, because June in June 16th, 1904, that was the day that James Joyce went on his first date with his wife-to-be, Nora. Um, you should read their letters, is what I will say. Um, we are at the kind of third, one-third down on page eight of the Gabler edition, in chapter one. Uh, my hope is that we finish chapter one today, but it will depend on my stamina, I suppose. Um, also, I kind of was told slash realized that I would benefit from a pop filter in my microphone. Um, one is in the mail. <laughs> I do not have it yet. I'm recording anyway. If it's unlistenable after I record this, I will re-record, but we shall see. So where were we? I said we are at the top of page 8. Um, that situates us in the early morning of June 16th in a military tower, uh, in a kind of an abandoned military tower um, on the shores of Dublin Bay. Um, Buck Mulligan, a doctoral student, a student of medicine, um, is occupying the tower with Stephen Dedalus and a, um, a British man we have yet to meet named Haynes. Um, and Buck Mulligan has pushed Stephen a little bit to uh, maybe explain his black mood in the wake of his mother's death, and maybe why he did not bow to his mother when his mother demanded on her deathbed that he resubmit to the church. Uh, Buck Mulligan has just kind of walked away from Stephen at the top of the parapet. Stephen is looking out upon the sea. And the first voice we will hear, the first speech, is from Haynes, who we they have talked about but have yet to uh, has yet to be kind of quote on screen. So, let's begin. A voice within the tower called loudly, "Are you up there, Mulligan?" "I'm coming," Buck Mulligan answered. He turned towards Stephen and said, "Look at the sea. What does it care about offenses? Chuck Loyola, Kinch, and come on down. The Sassanac wants his morning rashers. His head halted again for a moment at the top of the staircase, level with the roof. Don't mope over it all day, he said. I'm inconsequent. Give up the moody brooding. His head vanished, but the drone of his descending voice boomed out over the boomed out of the stairhead. And no more turn aside and brood upon love's bitter mystery, for Fergus rules the brazen cars. Wood shadows floated silently by through the morning peace from the stairhead seaward where he gazed. Inshore and farther out the mirror of water whitened, spurned by light-shod hurrying feet. White breast of the dim sea, the twining stresses two by two, a hand plucking the harp strings, merging their twining chords. Wave-white wetted words shimmering on the dim tide. A cloud began to cover the sun slowly, wholly, shadowing the bay in deeper green. It lay beneath him, a bowl of bitter waters. Fergus's song, 
I sang it alone in the house, holding down the long, dark chords. Her door was open. She wanted to hear my music. Silent with awe and pity, I went to her bedside. She was crying in her wretched bed. For those words, Stephen, love's bitter mystery. Where now? Her secrets, old feather fans, tasseled dance cards, powdered with musk, a god of amber beads in her locked drawer. A birdcage hung in the sunny window of her house when she was a girl. She heard old Royce sing in the pantomime of Turco the Terrible, and laughed with others when he sang, I am the boy that can enjoy invisibility. Phantasmal mirth folded away, musk perfumed, and no more turn aside and brood. Folded away in the memory of nature with her toys, memories beset his brooding brain, her glass of water from the kitchen tap when she had approached the sacrament, a cored apple filled with brown sugar roasting for her at the hob on a dark autumn evening, her shapely fingernails reddened by the blood of squashed lice from the children's shirts. In a dream, silently, she had come to him, her wasted body within its loose grave clothes giving off an odor of wax and rosewood, her breath bent over him with mute secret words, a faint odor of wetted ashes. Her glazing eyes, staring out of death, to shake and bend my soul. On me alone, the ghost candle to light her agony, ghostly light on the tortured face, her hoarse, loud breath rattling in horror, while all played on their knees, her eyes on me to strike me down. Liliata rutilantium to confessorum turma succumdit, iubilantium to virginum chorus excepiat. Ghoul, chewer of corpses. No, mother, let me be and let me live. Kinch ahoy! Buck Mulligan's voice sang from within the tower. It came nearer up the staircase, calling again. Stephen, still trembling at his soul's cry, heard warm sunlight, and in the air behind him friendly words. Daedalus, come down like a good mosey. Breakfast is ready. Haynes is apologizing for waking us last night. It's all right. I'm coming, Stephen said, turning. Do for Jesus' sake, Buck Mulligan said, for my sake and for all our sakes. His head disappeared and reappeared. I told him your symbol of Irish art. He says it's very clever. Touch him for a quid, will you? A guinea, I mean. I get paid this morning, Stephen said. The school kip? Buck Mulligan said. How much? Four quid? Lend us one. If you want it, Stephen said. Four shining sovereigns, Buck Mulligan cried with delight. We'll have a glorious drunk to astonish the druidy druids. Four omnipotent sovereigns. He flung up his hands and tramped down the stone stairs, singing out of tune with a cockney accent. Oh, won't we have a merry time drinking whiskey, beer, and wine on Coronation, Coronation Day? Oh, won't we have a merry time on Coronation Day? Warm sunshine marrying over the sea. The nickel shaving bowl shone, forgotten on the parapet. Why should I bring it down, or leave it there all day, forgotten friendship? He went over to it, held it in his hands a while, feeling its coolness, smelling the clammy slaver of the lather in which the brush was stuck. So I carried the boat of incense then at Klongaus. I am another now, and yet the same, a servant too, server of a servant. In the gloomy domed living room of the tower, Buck Mulligan's gowned form moved briskly to and fro about the hearth, hiding and revealing its yellow glow. Two shafts of soft daylight fell across the flagged floor from its high barbicans, and at the meeting of their rays a cloud of coal-smoke and fumes of fried grease floated, turning. "'We'll be choked!' 
Buck Mulligan said. Haynes, open that door, will you? Stephen laid the shaving bowl on the locker. A tall figure rose from the hammock where it had been sitting, went to the doorway, and pulled open the inner doors. Have you the key? a voice asked. Daedalus has it, Buck, Mugla Buck Mulligan said. Janny Mac, I'm choked! He howled without looking up from the fire. Kinch! It's in the lock, Stephen said, coming forward. The key scraped around harshly twice, and, when the heavy door had been set ajar, welcome light and bright air entered. Haynes stood at the doorway, looking out. Stephen hailed his upended valise to the table and sat down to wait. Buck Mulligan tossed the fry onto the dish beside him. Then he carried the dish and a large teapot over to the table, set them down heavily, and sighed with, sighed with relief. "'I'm melting,' he said as the candle remarked when— "'But hush!' Not a word more on that subject. Kinch, wake up. Bread, butter, honey. Haynes, come in. The grub is ready. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts. Where is the sugar? Oh, Jay, there's no milk. Stephen fetched the loaf and the pot of honey and the butter cooler from the locker. Buck Mulligan sat down in a sudden pet. What sort of a kip is this, he said. I told her to come after eight. We can drink it black, Stephen said thirstily. There is a lemon in the locker. Oh, damn you and your Paris fads, Buck Mulligan said. I want Sandy Cove milk. Haynes came in from the doorway and said quietly, The woman is coming up with the milk. The blessings of God on you, Buck Mulligan cried, jumping up from his chair. Sit down, pour out the tea there. The sugar is in the bag. Here, I can't go fumbling at the damned eggs. He hacked through the fry on the dish and slapped it out on three plates, saying, In nomine Patrice et filii et spiritus sancti. Haynes sat down to pour out the tea. I'm giving you two lumps each, he said, but I say, Mulligan, you do make strong tea, don't you? Buck Mulligan, hewing thick slices from the loaf, said in an old woman's wheedling voice, When I makes tea, I makes tea, as old Mother Grogan said, and when I makes water, I makes water. By Jove, it is tea, Haynes said. Buck Mulligan went on hewing and wheedling. So I do, Mrs. Cahill, says she. Begob, ma'am, says Mrs. Cahill. God sound you don't make them in the one pot. He lunged toward his messmates in a, th in a turn, a thick slice of bread, impaled on his knife. That's folk, he said earnestly, for your book, Haynes. Five lines of text and ten pages of notes about the folk and the fish gods of Dundrum, printed by the weird systems in the sisters in the year of the big wind. He turned to Stephen and asked in a fine, puzzled voice, lifting his brows, Can you recall, brother, is Mother Grogan's tea and water pot spoken of in the Mabionogian, or is it in the Upanishads? I doubt it, Stead said Stephen gravely. Do you now? Buck Mulligan said in the same tone. Your reasons, pray. I fancy, Stephen said as he ate, it did not exist in or out of the Mabinogian. Mother Grogan was, as one imagines, a kinswoman of Marianne. Buck Mulligan's face smiled with delight. Charming, he said in a finical sweet voice, showing his white teeth and blinking his eyes pleasantly. Do you think she was quite charming? Then, suddenly overclouding all his features, he growled in a hoarsened, rasping voice as he hewed again vigorously at the loaf. For old Marianne, she doesn't care a damn, but, hising up her petticoats, he crammed his mouth with fry and munched and droned. The doorway was darkened by an entering form. The milk, sir. Come in, ma'am, Mulligan said. Kinch, get the jug. An old woman came forward and stood by Stephen's elbow. That's a lovely morning, sir, she said. Glory be to God. To whom? Buck Mulligan said, glancing at her. Ah, to be sure. 
Stephen reached back and took the milk jug from the locker. The Islanders, Mulligan said to Haynes casually, speak frequently of the collector of prepuces. How much, sir? asked the old woman. A quart, Stephen said. He watched her pour into the measure and thence into the jug, rich white milk, not hers, old shrunken paps. She poured again a measure full and a tilly. Old and secret she had entered from a morning world, maybe a messenger. She praised the got the goodness of the milk, pouring it out. Crouching by a patient cow at daybreak in the lush field, a witch on her toadstool, her wrinkled fingers quick at the squirting dugs. They lowed about her, whom they knew, do silky cattle. Silk of the kine and poor old woman, names given her in old times. A wandering crone, lowly form of an immortal, serving her conqueror and her gay betrayer, their common cuck-queen, a messenger from the secret morning, to serve or to upbraid, whether he could not tell, but scorned to beg her favor. "'It is indeed, ma'am,' Buck Mulligan said, pouring milk into their cups. "'Taste it, sir,' she said. He drank at her bidding. "'If we could live on good food like that,' he said to her somewhat loudly, "'we wouldn't have a country full of rotten teeth and rotten guts, "'living in a bog swamp, eating cheap food in the streets paved with dusk, "'with dust, horse dung, and consumptive spits.' "'Are you a medical student, sir?' the old woman asked. "'I am, ma'am,' Buck Mulligan answered. "'Look at that now,' she said. Stephen listened in scornful silence. She bows her old head to a voice that speaks to her loudly, her bone-setter, her medicine man. Me, she slights. To the voice that will shrive and oil for the grave, all there is is of her but her woman's unclean loins, of a man's flesh not made in God's likeness, the serpent's prey. And to the loud voice that now bids her be silent with wondering, unsteady eyes. Do you understand what he says? Stephen asked of her. "'Is it French you are talking, sir?' the old woman asked to Haynes. Haynes spoke to her again in a longer speech, confidently. "'Irish,' Buck Mulligan said. "'Is there Gaelic on you?' "'I thought it was Irish,' she said by the sound of it. "'Are you from the West, sir?' "'I am an Englishman,' Haynes answered. "'He's English,' Buck Mulligan said, "'and thinks we ought to speak Irish in Ireland.' "'Sure we ought to,' the old woman said, "'and I'm ashamed that I don't speak the language myself. "'I'm told it's a grand language by them that knows.' "'Grand is no name for it,' said Buck Mulligan. "'Wonderful entirely. "'Fill us out some more tea, Kinch. "'Would you like a cup, ma'am?' "'No, thank you, sir,' the old woman said, "'slipping the ring of the milk can on her forearm and about to go. "'Haynes said to her, "'Have you your bill? "'We had better pay her, Mulligan, hadn't we?' "'Stephen filled again the three cups. "'Bill, sir?' she said, halting. Well, it's seven mornings a pint at two pence is seven twos a shilling and two pence over these, and three mornings a quart at four pence is three quarts a shilling. <laughs> That's a shilling, and one and two is two and two, sir. Buck Mulligan sighed, and having filled his mouth with a crust, thickly buttered on both sides, stretched forth his legs and began to search his trouser pockets. Pay up and look pleasant, Haynes said to him, smiling. Stephen filled a third cup, a spoonful of tea coloring faintly the thick, rich milk. Buck Mulligan brought up a florin, twisted it round in his fingers, and cried, A miracle! He passed it along the table toward the old woman, saying, Ask nothing more of me, sweet. All I can give you, I give. Stephen laid the coin in her uneager hand. We'll owe two pence, he said. Time enough, sir, she said, taking the coin. Time enough. Good morning, sir. 
She curtsied and went out, followed by Buck Mulligan's tender chant, Heart of my heart, were it more, more would be laid at your feet. He turned to Stephen and said, Seriously, Daedalus, I'm stony. Hurry out to your school and school kip and bring us back some money. Today the bards must drink and junk it. Ireland expects that every man this day will do his duty. That reminds me, Haynes said, rising, that I have to visit your national library today. Our swim first, Buck Mulligan said. He turned to Stephen and asked blandly, Is this the day for your monthly wash, Kinch? Then he said to Haynes, The unclean bard makes a point of washing once a month. All Ireland is washed by the Gulf Stream, Stephen said as he let honey trickle over a slice of loaf. Buck Mulligan turned suddenly for an instant towards Stephen, but did not speak. In the bright, silent instant, Stephen saw his own image in cheap, dusty mourning between their gay attires. It's a wonderful tale, Haynes said, bringing them to a halt again. Eyes, pale as the sea the wind had freshened, paler, firm and prudent. The sea's ruler, he gazed southward over the bay, empty save for the smoke plume of the mailboat, vague on the bright skyline, and a sail tacking by the muglins. I read a theological interpretation of it somewhere, he said, bemused. The father and son idea, the son striving to be atoned with the father. Buck Mulligan at once put a blithe, broadly smiling face. He looked at them, his well-shaped mouth opened happily, his eyes, from which he had suddenly withdrawn all shrewd sense, blinking with mad gaiety. He moved a doll's head to and fro, the brims of his Panama hat quivering, and began to chant in a quiet, happy, foolish voice, I'm the queerest young fellow that ever you heard. My mother's a Jew, my father's a bird. With Jophus Joseph the joiner I cannot agree, so here's to disciples in Calvary. He held up a forefinger of warning. If anyone thinks that I am not divine, he'll get no free drinks when I'm making the wine, but I have to drink water and wish it were plain, that I make when the wine becomes water again. He tugged swiftly at Stephen's ash plant in farewell, and, running forward to the brow of the cliff, fluttered his hands at his sides like fins, or wings of one about to rise in the air, and chanted, Goodbye now, goodbye. Write it down all, I said, and tell Tom, Dick, and Harry I rose from the dead. What's bred in the bone cannot fail me to fly, and Olivet's breezy. Goodbye now, goodbye. He capered before them down toward the forty-foot hole, fluttering his wing-like hands, leaping nimbly, Mercury's hat quivering in the fresh wind that bore them back to his, his brief bird-sweet cries. Haynes, who had been laughing guardedly, walked on beside Stephen and said, we ought to laugh, I suppose. I suppose. He's rather blasphemous. I'm not a believer myself, that is to say. Still, his gaiety takes the harm out of it somehow, doesn't it? What did he call it? Joseph the Joiner? The Ballad of Joking Gina Jesus, Stephen answered. Oh, Haynes said. Have you heard it before? Three times a day after meals, Stephen said dryly. You're not a believer, are you? Haynes asked. I mean, a believer in the narrow sense of the word. Creation from nothing and miracles and a personal god. There is only one sense of the word, it seems to me, Stephen said. Haynes stopped to take a smooth silver case in which twinkled a green stone. He sprang it open with his thumb and offered it. Thank you, Stephen said, taking a cigarette. Haynes helped himself and snapped the case too. He put it back in his side pocket and took from his waistcoat, coat, waistcoat pocket a nickel tinderbox, sprang it open too, and, having lit his cigarette, held the flaming spunk towards Stephen in the shell of his hands. Yes, of course, he said as they went on again. Either you believe or you don't, isn't it? Personally, I couldn't stomach the idea of a personal god. You don't stand for that, I suppose. 
You behold in me, Stephen said with grim, with grim displeasure, a horrible example of free thought. He walked on, waiting to be spoken to, trailing his ash plant by his side. Its ferule followed lightly on the path, squeaking at his heels. My familiar, after me, calling Stephen. A wavering line along the path. They will walk on it tonight, coming here in the dark. He wants that key. It is mine. I paid the rent. Now I eat his salt bread. Give him the key to all. He will ask for it. That was in his eyes. After all, Haynes began. Stephen turned and saw that cold gaze which had measured him was not all unkind. After all, I should think you are able to free yourself. You are your own master, it seems to me. I am a servant of two masters, Stephen said, an English and an Italian. Italian, Haynes said. A crazy queen, old and jealous, kneeled down before me. And a third, Stephen said, there is who wants me for odd jobs. Italian, Haynes said again. What do you mean? The Imperial British State, Stephen answered, his color rising, and the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church. Haynes detached from his underlip some fibers of tobacco before he spoke. I can quite understand that, he said calmly. An Irishman must think like that, I dare say. We feel in England that we have treated you rather unfairly. It seems history is to blame. The proud, potent titles clanged over Stephen's memory, the triumph of their brazen bells, et unum sanctum catholicum et apostolicum ecclesium. The slow growth and change of right and dogma, like his own rare thoughts, a chemistry of stars. Symbol of the apostles in the math, in the mass for Pope Marcellus. The voices blended, singing alone loud in affirmation, and behind their chant the vigilant angel of the church militant disarmed and menaced her higher her heresarchs. A horde of heresies fleeing with their mitres awry, Photius and the brood of mockers of whom Mulligan was one, and Arius, warring his life long upon the consubstantiality of the son with the father, and Valentine, spurning Christ's terrene body, and the subtle African hierarch Sibelius, who held that the father was himself his own son. Words Mulligan had spoken a moment in sense and mockery to the stranger, idle mockery. The void awaits, surely all of them, that weave the wind. A menace, a disarming and worsting from those embattled angels of the church, Michael's host, who defend her ever in the hour of conflict with their lances and their shields. Hear, hear, prolonged applause. Zoot, nom de deux. Of course I'm a Britisher, Haynes' voice said, and I feel as one. I don't want to see my country fall into the hands of German Jews either. That's our national problem, I'm afraid, just now. Two men stood at the verge of the cliff watching, businessman boatman. She's making for Bullock Harbor. The boatman nodded toward the boat north of the bay with some disdain. There's five fathoms out there, he said. It'll be swept up that way when the tide comes in about one. It's nine days today. The man that was drowned. A sail veering about the blank bay, waiting for a swollen bundle to bob up. Roll over to the sun, a puffy face, salt white. Here I am. They followed the winding path down the creek. Buck Mulligan stood on a stone in his shirt sleeves, his unclipped tie rippling over his shoulder. A young man, clinging to a spur of rock near him, moved slowly frogwise his green legs in the deep jelly of the water. Is the brother with you, Malachi? Down in Westmeath, with the Bannons. Still there? I got a card from Bannon. Says he found a sweet young thing down there. Photo girl, he calls her. Snapshot, eh? Brief exposure. 
Buck Mulligan sat down to unlace his boots. An elderly man shot up near the spur of rock a blowing red face. He scrambled up by the stones, water glistening on his pate and on its garland of gray hair, water rilling over his chest and paunch and spilling jets out of his black sagging loincloth. Buck Mulligan made way for him to scramble past and, glancing at Haynes and Stephen, crossed himself piously with his thumbnail at brow and lips and breastbone. "'Seymour's back in town,' the young man said, grasping again his spur of rock. "'Chucked medicine and going in for the army.' "'Ah, go to God,' Buck Mulligan said. "'Going over next week to stew. "'You know that Red Carlisle girl, Lily?' "'Yes. "'Spooning with him last night on the pier. "'The father's rota with money.' "'Is she up the pole? "'Better ask Seymour that. "'Seymour, a bleeding officer,' Buck Mulligan said. "'He nodded to himself as he drew off his trousers and stood up, saying tritely, "'Red-headed women buck like goats.' "'He broke off in alarm, feeling his side under his flapping shirt. "'My twelfth rib is gone,' he cried. "'I'm the ubermensch, toothless Kinch and I the supermen.' "'He struggled out of his shirt and flung it behind him to where his clothes lay. "'Are you going in here, Malachi?' Yes, make room in the bed. The young man shoved himself backward through the water and reached the middle of the creek in two long, clean strokes. Haynes sat down on a smoke on a stone, smoking. Are you not coming in? Buck Mulligan asked. Later on, Haynes said. Not on my breakfast. Stephen turned away. I'm going, Mulligan, he said. Give us that key, Kinch, Buck Mulligan said, to keep my chemise flat. Stephen handed him the key. Buck Mulligan laid it across his heaped clothes. And two pence, he said, for a pint. Throw it there. Stephen threw two pennies on the soft heap, dressing, undressing. Buck Mulligan, erect, with joined hands before him, said solemnly, He who stealeth from the poor lendeth to the Lord. Thus spake Zarathustra. His plump body plunged. We'll see you again, Haynes said, turning as Stephen walked up the path and smiling at wild Irish. Horn of a bull, hoof of a horse, smile of a Saxon. The ship, Buck Mulligan cried, half twelve. Good, Stephen said. He walked along the upcurving path. Liliata rutilantium, terma circumdet, jubilantium te virginum. The priest's gray nimbus in a niche where he dressed discreetly. I will not sleep here tonight. Home also I cannot go. A voice, sweet-toned and sustained, called to him from the sea. Turning the curve, he waved his hand. It called again, a sleek brown head, a seal's, far out on the water, round. Usurper.